November 5th, you'll vote on next year's fiscal budget. That's the only business coming before you at this meeting because you voted earlier to put off the election of officers until later in the year. And at that time, you'll receive fuller reports on the ministry of the church. So those of you who are members, it would be wonderful to have a quorum so we can actually <laughs> adopt the budget. The second is that uh, Pray First, which ordinarily meets on the first Sunday of the month uh, because of Labor Day was put off till this Sunday. And so we're invited to come tonight at six to the chapel and have a sweet time of prayer together. I attended for the first time last month and it was indeed uh, a sweet time of prayer. Our first lesson is taken from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, beginning with verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our second lesson is from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 46. This is one of those times that Jesus so surprises us with what seems to be a rather unnatural coldness toward his biological family. And yet we see him in the very act of doing this, teaching us the deepest things of our family relationship to the Lord. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 46, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. The gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. And our text this morning is once again from 1 John. We've been studying this beautiful little letter of 1 John now for a time. And we have seen, we started actually not with chapter 1, verse 1, but we started, if uh, you were not with us, uh, with the fifth and final chapter because we wanted to show what John was up to in this little letter. At the end of John's gospel, second to the last chapter, final verse, John chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. He says, Jesus did many other things than these that I've recorded, did many other signs, but I've written these so that you will have enough 
to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. But we know from John's gospel, as we've observed, that there was believing in Jesus and believing that was not saving faith. For example, at the end of chapter two, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover season, many believed in his name when they saw the things that he did, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts and needed no one to reveal what was in their hearts. So John and his gospel had set up this kind of conundrum of, well, there's a believing in Jesus that is saving, and there's a believing in Jesus that isn't saving, and how am I to know whether or not I'm, I'm truly born anew and have hope of eternal life? So he wrote this beautiful little letter and tells us at the end of it, these things I've written to those who believed in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is the series of tests, or as I've called them, vital signs, just like a doctor taking blood pressure, pulse, and respiration. In this little work, he gives us three vital signs by which we may regularly learn to test ourselves, not to see whether we're good enough, but whether to see that indeed Christ is at work within us. And we've seen that those three vital signs are a doctrinal belief, a new way of thinking, and it centers on Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, the Son of God, come in the flesh. It is everything that the scriptures teach us about him. That's the first sign. The second sign is a relational sign, whether or not we are learning to love one another even as Christ has loved us. And the third is the ethical or behavioral sign. Are we walking it out? Uh, James is the great book on that saying, faith without works is dead. I have a, a friend who's an Old Testament professor, maybe some of you all have read some of Tremper Longman's uh, uh, works on the Old Testament. But I was doing a conference with him once and he said, you know, the Bible is filled with canonical corrections the way that God balances things out. He said, for example, when, when Solomon was young, he wrote the Proverbs, do this and this will happen, don't do that and that won't happen. Then he said he got a little older and he wrote Ecclesiastes, which basically says, well, not always. And so <laughs> in the same way, God has given us Romans, which is hammering away against work salvation and Galatians. But he has James that keeps pushing and saying, but hear everything that the Apostle Paul is saying. Read his letters after the therefore, when he now says, this is the change that should take place. And so that's the third mark, and that's what our text this morning centers on. Um, and I'm actually going to read it now. First John, the end of chapter 2, and the first 10 verses of chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we just picked this text up and read it, I don't know about you, but I'd find it pretty depressing. Uh, this book is supposed to have been written to give us confidence and assurance. And uh, he keeps saying, you know, if God is righteous, so if you're his, you're righteous. If, if you're still sinning, you're not his child, you're the devil's child because the devil's been sinning. I mean, you read it and you go, oh my goodness. I'm lost. But John, as we've seen, beautifully balances everything that he is saying. Uh, there's a wonderful book that I'm finishing now that was written by one of our own people. Uh, Rich, forgive me for embarrassing you, but if you want to see how the Bible uses paradox to teach the deepest truths, get Rich Hansen's book, Paradox Lost. And there is a sense in which in the scripture, God is giving us truths too deep to neatly make a series of bullet points. And so here, note how he begins. He begins by saying, abide in him. Now, those who were here last Sunday heard a beautiful sermon from Drew on this deeper call. He went back to the great source, John 15, where Jesus teaches what it means to abide as the vine has to, or as the branch has to abide in the vine in order to have life. We need to be abiding in Christ. And he talked deeply about it. And if you weren't here and want to hear a great sermon on that, you can go on our website and hear it. But he starts again with this, abide in him, abide in him. So he's working on the assumption that he is talking to children of God who are abiding in Christ, who have this deep connection that he has given us by making us his, and we'll see in a minute how he has done that. So it's a context of talking to God's people. So it's, it's a warning, it's a call, but he's talking to the family. And then even more deeply, I want you to note how he begins, there is this flow. Drew last week described, he said, if you're not uh, of uh, uh, agriculture or garden 
uh, capabilities, still think in terms of a hose. A hose has to be connected for the water to go through it. Well, what's flowing through this text is the love of God. Because he starts chapter 3 with words that nobody can translate, or, or we can translate them, but all translations change them from the literal meaning to try to make them more understandable to us. Ours is, see what great love the Father has for us, or words like that. But a literal translation I love, and I wish they'd just use it. John says, from what country is this love? In other words, nobody loves like this anywhere. Where is this from? We see this throughout the scripture. We love our friends, we love our families. Thank you all for letting me go last week and uh, go back down home and I got to see all three of my kids and all but two of my grandkids and spend quality time with them. I love every one of them so much it would not even be a question about giving my life for one of them. But that's not true of everyone I know. <laughs> I'll just, how, how do I say this delicately? Um, and yet the wonder of this love is wh where, from what country is this coming? Where God, while we were yet sinners rebelling against him, using his name as a curse, running from his deepest ways, the ways that he gave us because he loves us and said, this is the way of life. And in the midst of that, what does he do but make an unbelievable sacrifice? And, and I think sometimes we miss the depth and extent and wonder of the incarnation because we think of it as having just occurred in time. Okay, God joined himself through the person of his son to humanity for a period of time and did a work that we needed that we could not do. Everything depends upon that work. But then he ascended and now everything's back to the way it was. No. The son of God from all of eternity co-equal with God joined himself to human flesh and the Bible tells us he will retain that human flesh forever. So while on the one hand we, we worship a God who is changeless, unchanging, nonetheless there is a sense in which it is not blasphemous to say something changed because this great God from eternity who had purposed from eternity to do this not only made us and redeemed us, but one member of the Trinity is fully God and fully human. What country does this love come from? It's, it's sure not American. And I've traveled to a lot of countries in the world and I sure haven't seen it there either. This is what the kingdom is about. And as we'll see at the end, this is what's to be flowing through us and changing everything. It is that love with which we have been loved that is supposed to be flowing through us and out to the world around us. And that's why it is so utterly unbecoming to see angry Christians in the public square 
with their faces red, screaming at other people that they disagree with. I'm not saying we shouldn't take principled stands for truth and righteousness. We should. But we're to do it in an entirely different way as those through whom the love of Christ is flowing even to those with whom we have the deepest disagreements. But that's to cut to the end. Very quickly, just two things I'd, I'd encourage you to see in these verses that we read. What John does in this place is to first point us to what we might call the external means by which God has done his work for us. That which makes our righteousness possible. Now, perfect righteousness is never ours in this life except as we believe in Christ and his righteousness is credited to our account. He is our perfect righteousness before God. Nevertheless, there is a human righteousness, not perfect righteousness, but true righteousness as we'll see in a moment. And how in the world does that come? Well, he tells us in verses five and eight that it came because he says the Son of God came into the world to do two things. One was to get rid of sin, to destroy sins, our sins. It has a plural there. Because in him, he says, is no sin, singular, no principle of sin. There's nothing in him that's out of sync with the the truth of God and the perfection of God and the righteousness of God. He is perfection, but he came in order to get rid of our sins. Now, think for a moment about how different that is from so much popular Christian literature that Dallas Willard rightly called sin management. Willard said, most evangelical stuff today is all about managing sin. Yeah, you're a sin, sinner, yeah, you're a mess, but you know, praise God, he, he, he's forgiven us, so don't, don't sweat that, don't look at yourself, don't get obsessed over that stuff. And that, the Bible never says that. Paul says, let a man examine himself to see whether or not he's in the faith, or is Christ not in you? So he came into the world to get rid of that so that in the church there would be less and less and less and less of the kind of stuff that we see out there so that we can be not a little holy huddle. We constantly want to be bringing broken people in because we've been broken and God's made us whole and he's still doing it. But we should be a countercultural group of people who are demonstrating, however imperfectly, what the kingdom will look like when at last it comes in its fullness. That's what he wants us to be depicting. Why do our kids matter so much? Because if you're not discipling your children, if we're not discipling them as a church, the world is going to be discipling them. It's hard at it. And we are to be that counterculture. And so Jesus came into the world to do it. He doesn't talk here about how he does it. And, but, I mean, his whole life and ministry, from the moment the Spirit thrust him out into the wilderness to battle Satan, right up until the cross, where Satan thought at last he'd driven a spike through him, and instead he'd driven the spike through his own head because Christ there was bearing sin and triumphing over everything that would separate us from God. So he came into the world to do that. And then in verse 8, he says he came 
into the world to destroy the devil. He's on a mission. Satan thinks he's the prince of the power of the air. I mentioned, I think, last time I was with you, that beautiful line in Eugene Peterson's book on Revelation, where he says, you know, it's reverse thunder. He says, we finally reached that cataclysmic moment that all of history's been waiting for and that so many books and movies have been made about. When, when at last Armageddon comes and the troops are massed around God's people. And I'd never noticed this before, but Peterson said, then just in one verse it says, and God sent fire from heaven and destroyed them. And Peterson famously said, or, or memorably said, if you went out for popcorn, you missed the whole thing. Uh, because God, in a moment, when, when this story is done, and he's gathered in those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, he will finally destroy Satan. But he wants to let us be part of the battle now. As the body of Christ, he wants us warring against the enemy of our souls and not passively rolling over and submitting to him. So he's calling us to that righteous warfare against sin, against wickedness, against evil, for the sake not only of his church but of the world. We are to be God's people here for their sake so that they'll be drawn in to him as well. His son, the second thing he says that he does is his seed. He gives us his seed. Now he has already, as we saw last time, he's already told us that he does his work in us through his word and his spirit. And theologians and biblical scholars argue over whether by seed here he means spirit or word. And I think he uses a different word to combine them both. The seed is what gives life. Life comes by the spirit through the word. He puts his seed within us. And now his life is in you if you are his. So when you think about the Lord, don't think about him way off, you know, wait, some other parallel universe or in eternity, whatever. God has come and entered you for you to be born again. His spirit is now in you. I'll tell you, I've had moments when I was sitting around watching movies where I've thought, if someone I really respected walked in this room, would I keep watching this trash? And yet I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is in me and I'm sitting here watching this? What is wrong with me? We need to live in that awareness that He, the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, is in us and that His Holy Word is in us and it is a seed of new life that we are to be feeding and nurturing so that it's growing up in us. That's the external. The internal is just this, and I can say it briefly. You'll be happy to know. We begin to take on the family resemblance. We begin to become like him. And he keeps saying that. He says, the devil is a liar. So those liars are, are showing whose family they're in. God is righteous. Christ is righteous. And so if you're in his family, you're going to start looking like that. You know, sometimes a, a child, well, I'll say two things. First of all, Paul in Romans 8 uses a beautiful example of adoption and says that God has adopted us as his children. And that's a beautiful picture in itself. 
And adoption is a beautiful thing. A family can take someone who is not theirs by blood and yet give that child just as much love, just as much inheritance, uh, just as, as great embrace as, as their blood children. But the one thing that we humans can't do is give them our genes. In some cases, they're probably happy. My kids got stuck with, you know, bald heads, skinny legs, or whatever. Thank God the girls aren't. Well, well my son's not either. Hopefully, they'll get their mothers. I'm sorry, that was, a, that was I just, just, you'd have a lot more sympathy for me if you knew how much stuff I edit out up here that doesn't slip out. But, I mean, we give our kids our genes. If we adopt, we can give them everything we give our kids except the family resemblance. But God, by giving us his seed, not only adopts us, but he puts his life in us so that it begins to show. And it doesn't always show when you're young. When I was young, uh, the third of four children, my siblings looked so much more like my dad and my dad's side of the family, and I kind of looked like I'd been immaculately conceived. I looked like my mother's side of the family and didn't look like a wood until I began to get older. And now that I'm old, and especially since I grew this, which my dad did when he retired, I look in the mirror some mornings and go, Dad, what, what are you doing there? My older brother called me. He'd seen a picture of me. And he said, I don't know whether you'll be pleased or, or grieved at this, John, but he said, I saw a picture of you with your mustache and beard. You looked exactly like our father when he was very old. <laughs> but my point is, it's going to come out. If you've got those genes, they're going to come out. Well, it's true in God's family as well, and that's what he's saying. He says, why can't you just go on living in patterns of unrighteousness and disobedience? Because that's not who you are anymore. The New Testament doesn't tell us, be somebody else so that you can be God's child. We can't do that. We can't save ourselves. The New Testament says, he has made you his. He has put his spirit in you. He has given you his word. Now be who you are. Start living like your family. And that's what the world around us so desperately needs to see, isn't it? They desperately need to see people not perfect like we won't do it perfectly. We need to be open about that but who are on a different trajectory of life than we used to be on. Those who know us best, those who live with us, should be seeing year after year a measure of change in the sweetening of our disposition and of our personalities, not a sharpening, in a, an increasingly Christ-like response to the hard things of life, to a growing hope, and above all, this love, because his final word, and he casts it in the negative, but he says, if you don't love your brother, and he's not just talking about blood brothers, he's talking about the family of God. He says, if you don't love your brother, then you're not of God, because he is love. And it's love from another country. And he wants you and me to realize that our citizenship, we may, I'm so grateful to be an American, I watched the, you know, we, we had the privilege of 
some of us growing up and living our long life during Elizabeth's long reign. And we saw a woman of character who managed somehow, in spite of all the craziness in the family, all the craziness in the culture, to continue to maintain her dignity. And I think personally, it was her sense that God had called her to this and that she promised the Lord she would do it until she died. And I, I think we can look at someone like that and say, wow, look at that long obedience in the same direction. But having seen that and having revered her, I thank God I'm an American. I don't want to bow the knee to any monarch, but God. And yet I know that this is not my final destiny. I am a citizen now of the United States, but I'm a citizen forever of this other kingdom from which this unbelievable love comes. And I pray that we will increasingly be a conduit of that love to one another and to the community and to the world around us. This is a place where God invites us to taste and see how much he loves us. The reason that the sacrament I think is so important is it looks back. It looks back on Jesus' last supper. It looks back on his death the body and blood represented in these elements. But it's more than that. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, that it's a participation in his body and blood. Right now, as we take this and receive it in faith, we are in some mysterious way participating, and it is binding us together as a people. And it also looks to the future, because Jesus said that the day is going to come when at last we sit around the table. And in that beautiful picture, Christ girds himself and serves us with sweet manna all around. <laughs> all of this back, present, future, the love of God flowing through us. So when you come, I want you to taste and see how much the Lord loves you. The deacons are going to help you and direct you. We're going to have eight elders up here in four pairs of two. One will be holding bread, the other the wine, and you'll be directed to one of those stations to take the bread and the wine and then find your way back. But in the midst of all that, don't lose sight of the glory of what we're doing here, the wonder of his love for us. So I invite you to come if you're sorry for your sins and trusting in the Lord alone. Then come, come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come not because you're good in yourself, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because he loves you with an other country love and he gave himself for you.